0: Coming to you from the deep and weird and ADHD-fueled recesses of Marshall Lichty's neocortex, this is JDHD, a podcast for lawyers with ADHD where we talk about, finally, getting stuff done. We help you optimize your law practice, your business, your life, and your brain. We hyper-focus on ideas, tips, and tricks for every lawyer with ADHD, whether they know they have it or not. And now, your host a guy who once held someone's fake eyeball in his palm, Marshall Lichty.
1: Two weeks in a row. Are you serious? Hey, thank you for being here. Uh, I'm glad to be here. We're at two weeks in a row. It's awesome. And a couple of things are really standing out to me. First of all, it's that uh, some habits that I've really been laser focused on are really starting to pay off. Um, It has been a really important part of my life to focus on riding my bike every single day for at least 30 minutes a day, to meditate, and to get at least seven and a half hours of sleep at night. Now, there are some other ones in there and the first two, uh, I've done really, really well on and it's been really important and it feels really great. Um, And so I think that's part of why I'm back and part of why I'm energized and part of why things feel like I've got new energy. Um, But I'll tell you there, I have clients that are uh, sharing their struggles with me, they, you know, have struggles that we all expect: billing and timekeeping and processing their email. I have clients with real struggles in project planning and project management and priority management. Studying for law students. I even have a client whose real catalyst for an amazing day is making sure that she takes a shower in the morning. And so we've been working on habits to ensure that it's really easy for her to remember to take a shower in the morning. ADHD does come with some of these things that make a struggle, but it also comes with amazing superpowers. It comes with creativity and grit and energy and entrepreneurship. And today's guest shows every single one of those things. Um, She's a content marketing guru. She's possibly the world's first equine photography contract ninja, which seems like couldn't be a thing, but listen up. It's a thing. She's the host of a now-shuttered world-famous podcast, a late-diagnosed ADHD woman lawyer with ADHD and wanderlust and a record of being a many-time internet entrepreneur. She's an all-around kind and thoughtful and insightful and generous guest. We had a great conversation both before I hit record and after. And this episode, I'm really proud of it, and it's chock full of stories and tips about ADHD. There are... Tips on marketing and content creation and the unending drive to create beautiful things. I am Marshall Lichty. She is Christina Scalera. And this is JDHD, a podcast for lawyers with ADHD. Listen up. So, Christina Scalera, hi. How are you? Hi. Thank you I'm good, so How much. You doing? I'm so great. <laughs> yeah, I'm awesome. It's great to have you aboard.
2: It's so great to be here. You are Thank in you so Colorado much. right now. I am.
1: You're a lawyer from Georgia. Yes. You have ADHD. I do. What the hell? (laughs) What's going on? What's your story?
2: Oh, man. Uh, Well, the story from the beginning is I picked up and moved everything I owned about 30 times in my first 30 years of life. Part of that was me doing that. And then part of that was my dad was in the army. He was an army ranger and then sales sales. So just a life conducive to moving. And I think I got used to it. Um, I finally settled down for a little bit in Atlanta to go to law school and kind of create what I thought was going to be a life there. And then a couple of years ago, I came out to Colorado on a ski trip. And what started out as a temporary thing turned into we just never left. Um, So I've been going back and forth to Atlanta over the last few years. But I think I'm more seriously considering permanently moving here and dropping my Atlanta ties. <laughs>
1: That's amazing. So you went to Emory for law school. I did. Graduated, um, started practicing in in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. Okay.
2: Yeah. A, law firm
1: life or what, what did that look like?
2: No, I got a job working in-house at a private company right out of law school.
1: Right out of school.
2: Yeah. As so, a trademark counsel. So it was something that I'd worked on um, like during internships and Different jobs I'd had in law school, um, working all, all on trademarks, all prosecution work, and I got recruited because of that unique background into this private company. So that's where I I took the job right out of law school. Um, worked at a firm, you know, clerk the, the summer clerkship thing at a firm in Atlanta, Thompson Hine, uh, one year. But it just it was a lot of like insurance defense work and things that I wasn't as interested in. I just really loved trademarks which has uh, lent itself very well to what I do today, which is I have 2 companies. I have my law firm, which does very limited uh, work with just a handful of clients. I really am a partner to their businesses. They're all small, female-owned. Well, I shouldn't say they're all female-owned. I do have 2 men who are clients. Um, It's not like I'm actively recruiting just women, but that's just how it has kind of happened, I think, with my branding and my voice and everything. Sure. Sure. Um, but yeah, so those are my clients. Now I do primarily trademark prosecution work for them, monitoring maintenance, and then, um, some other things that are just really unique for the fields that they're in. So let in me stop you marketing. for just a second. Yeah. Cause I want
1: to talk about very briefly that practice. Mm-hmm. So the law firm is a Georgia law firm. It I is. mean, based, based in Georgia, your mailing address, et cetera, is in, in Georgia. Mm-hmm. But as you say, you're not there. How does it work to be running a a legal business out of Georgia when you live in Colorado for the most part? Yeah,
2: <laughs> that's a good question. I mean, that's, that's why I'm actively seeking a uh, licensure here in Colorado, but I mean, everything I do for my clients is federal, like, like legally based in federal law. So yep. trademarks, copyrights, um, no one has ever come to me with an issue that wasn't based in some kind of federal law. So from what I understand and, you know, I'm sure Someone listening to this podcast will shout me out and correct me. I would love to be corrected uh, in a nice, kind, gentle way. But from what I understand, as long as you're doing federal work that involves trademarks and copyrights and things like that, um, it doesn't really matter where you're licensed. You just have to be licensed at the highest court of your state. So, of course, I am in Georgia. I'm licensed in every possible way there. Um, and then that's what I'm doing as I work to move here more permanently is also establish that license here and get licensed in every applicable place while I'm in Colorado. Um, the other thing is my clients are all over the place. Right. I mean, it's just... By the time this comes out, it's probably 2020. We're recording it in 2019. But... Um, it's just unrealistic to limit someone's... I mean, I would have more conflicts of interest, I think, if I worked with local clients than the work that I do with online marketers and course creators who are online um, selling throughout the world. They're located all over the place. And we're always dealing with like very national internet laws if we have to talk about something that's beyond the scope of their trademarks or their copyrights. Um, Or we're dealing with something that has to relate to like FTC disclosures for influencers. So that obviously is not localized in any way that I'm aware of, um, at least in a more restrictive way than what the FTC does, which is pretty restrictive already. So
0: let's make ADHD easier. Law is hard enough.
1: So your marketing is nationwide. I mean, the, the the website is gorgeous. It's beautiful. It has an aesthetic that is very you. Um, you <laughs> you know you've just curated a uh, an imprint on the digital world that is very beautiful. It's curated. It's um it's clean. It evokes a lot of emotion that explains why people feel comfortable when they come to you. And I think for someone who doesn't market a law practice, um, you've built this neat this neat spot for people to find you and, um, actually get legal services from you. So I, I love that part. And I assume that you use a bunch of digital technology to have Skype or Zoom meetings and, you know, you're all automated and you probably have some, (laughs) you know, virtual reception (laughs) and you probably do a bunch of other things to make that run.
2: Yeah. Uh, I try to, you know, have that physical, uh, connection with my clients where actually some of them are, well, most of them are, not most. I would just say that about a third of them are actually in Georgia. So I've probably had lunch or you know gotten to meet them at some point at some event. Um, and then the other ones, I was usually friends with them first, and their businesses just really took off. And so I'm fortunate to know them personally. Um, and then I try to do you know like little physical things to make it more offline, sending gifts, um, you know, sending cards, that kind of thing, because I think that matters. And it. It's just a nice touch to add, especially when you have something that's so digital and so online and can be done from anywhere like trademark work.
1: Yeah, I agree. Well, and and what I think is interesting about the way that you've built your um, I'll call it an empire is it's built on some pillars that are pretty obvious. Right. So there's that design and beauty and creativity piece, but there's also a marketing piece that, um, you know, even though you're not actively marketing your law firm. Uh, there are elements of marketing. There are elements of oh,
2: absolutely. client
1: experience and elements yeah. of parts that you are very clearly curating. But let's talk about some of the other um, imprint that you've made in the world. I I love hearing about um, the contract shop and then, and then your other business. I assume this is actually related to the contract shop, but Which you've one? also now kind of started a, um, I would call it what, like a coaching oh,
0: opportunity okay, yes. for folks?
2: Okay. Yeah. Let me explain this because this could get really confusing. Yeah.
1: So let's start with the contract shop. Okay. Tell me, are you the robot that is taking everyone's job?
2: No, (laughs) not at all. I feel like I'm making lawyer's jobs easier, actually. So uh, basically what I saw in the marketplace a couple of years ago, I was working with a friend. She's a very famous horse photographer. Equine photography, uh, if you will, but she's a really famous horse photographer. Like her work's been on the cover of every major horse magazine. If you can believe this exists, it does. Um, I'm a horse person. So, you know, I grew up with these magazines and it was just like a dream to like have her as a friend and work with her. Um, and she basically, at the beginning of her career, like everybody starting a business had limited resources and she was just like, hey, we're friends. You're working on contracts for people. Can I just get like a copy of the stuff that you're working on? Because I'll fill it out. You know, maybe you can look at it, do a once over, but I don't know. Like, I don't really want to pay like four thousand, five thousand bucks to get a custom contract that has to get changed and blah, blah, blah.
1: I don't want to go find a lawyer. I don't know where to start. Exactly.
2: Yeah. Yeah. She's a photographer. She was actually, interestingly enough, she was working at a hedge fund as her full-time job and she left that to go do the photography thing full-time. But yeah, so she... Was the inspiration for the contract shop, and uh, the reason for that is because around this time, like she was getting like up and coming in her industry, and she had cultivated an email list of about thirty thousand people that wanted to do what she was doing with horse photography, and she was like, "Hey, could I sell this to them?" And I was like, "Mm, "I don't know about that. Like that seems like a like a bad situation. Like you don't really know like what you're talking about there or whatever." I was like, "What if?" I create an equine photography template, like co- contract template, for all these equine photographers out there to work with their clients. Um, especially because I'm a horse person, I get what it's like to work around horses. I know that you know all like there's 48 states that have these special liability clauses around equine participation and everything. So I was really in a unique situation to help yeah. her out. Um, so that's what I did, and I created that template. And then, just you know, it's like if If things aren 't easy, maybe you shouldn't pursue it because at the time, I was like trying to pursue an alternative path actually as like a yoga teacher, so I had left my in house job and I was like trying to do this thing as like a private yoga teacher. I met a friend, her name is Kelly Newsom George she lives in France now um she 's amazing she 's got a great story. She was featured on Bloomberg Law a while ago, but basically she was a corporate attorney that turned her interests into Uh, Becoming a private yoga teacher in DC. And she did it really successfully. And I was like, well, if she can do that, maybe I can do it in Atlanta. Like maybe we could do like a franchise thing or whatever. So that's how I left. I was also having a lot of like health challenges at the time, like really bad ones, getting hospitalized, things like that. Um, It all basically came down to like overwork and stress and all that fun stuff. And so I was like, okay, great. Well, I don't handle like moderation very well. So I'll just go to the other extreme of being a lawyer and become a yoga teacher. Found Kelly, started that whole thing, but everything was really hard. Um, I thought the yoga community was like this open, welcoming community. They turned out to be a bunch of jerks Oh wow! and it was like, every door was slammed in my face. It was really, really hard. And so around this time it's when I met Kirsty, my friend that you find photographer, and she, uh, had this idea and then I created these templates and then I was like, well, you know, if she wants to sell them to her audience, like I should probably have a, an online store to do that. Um, and that's when I created the online store. And then very shortly after that, like talk about the opposite of this brief yoga thing I had, every door was opened. Like there was a new society that was created for creatives called the rising tide society. Mm-hmm. It was like, brand new at the time. Um, two of my really good friends. Well, they're now good friends. I, I was nobody and they didn't know me at all at the time. Um, they ran that and I met them at a conference and very, Warily asked them if I could start a podcast for them, even though I'd never started a podcast, didn't know the first thing about it. Um, They had this society of like seventy thousand people, and they were like, "Who are you?" Um, But they were super kind, and they were like, "Well, you know, we're not going to let you just like help us start a podcast when you have no idea like what that entails. We don't either." But we're doing this webinar series, so could you teach people about contracts and like working in trademarks and with licensing contracts and things like that? Like client contracts are kind of a walk in the park, so they're all about a relationship with a client. They're not really—they don't have these like intense uh, provisions, and you know, you don't have to make sure everything's like as—I don't want to say like as tight, but like you—you just don't have to. Like I was so nervous and stressed out writing and working on licensing agreements. Um, client contracts for me are something that's really fun and it is all about establishing boundaries and expectations of each other. Mm. Um, and so I had a lot of fun writing these things. And so they were like, well, can you present this? And like talk to basically these are like super beginner, creative business owners. Like they don't know anything about legal stuff other than the parking ticket they got last week. Like, can you teach them about contracts? So I did a presentation there and I did the world's worst sales pitch, And that weekend sold about (laughs) $3,500 worth of product.
1: Is that right? I was
2: like, yeah, I was like, wow. Okay. So this online thing that I've been trying for the last two years that hasn't worked at all, it does work. You just have to have an audience. Um, And so from there, I started building this contract template shop and about a year and a half into it, I rebranded, renamed myself the contract shop. Um, And we came out with other templates, obviously not just like horse photographers, but we came (laughs) out with templates for... I was also really into calligraphy at the time. So I came out with a calligrapher's template. That's one of our best sellers. I came out with um, all kinds of different photography templates, all kinds of different graphic and web design, because I'd also gotten into a little bit of that as I was trying to do the yoga thing, because I was like starting my own blog and learning how to create graphics for my site. And I actually did a few graphic design projects and they were not pretty. And I feel so bad for the people. I mean, they, they paid me like a pittance, but still, I feel bad for everything. Um, but yeah, it gave me like the insight I needed to create those those contract templates for these service providers in a unique way. Um, because like before, my friend had approached me, I was just like, "Oh, LegalZoom exists. Like, what am I going to add to the marketplace? You guys don't need this." But been four, is it four, five, Yeah, four years and going strong. Um, four years in November. So there really is a need for somebody who actually understands these creative niches and can talk to them like where they're at. Um, which I think is the biggest problem that most lawyers have is like they want to appear professional or smart or whatever it might be and they really talk over the people that they're trying to attract yes um, I mean if if you're working on getting like corporate clients and you know you're working at like a boutique or mid-level or large law firm and and that's your person, like well sure like have the fancy site, have like the fancy legal jargon and the terms and everything. but like honestly the <sighs> the more I can create language to sell my products and services that is at a fourth grade level or lower, um, the closer I can get to that. Yep. Way more sales.
1: Yep. That doesn't shock me. That are
2: interested in working with me. Yeah.
1: That doesn't shock me in the slightest. So you have a, you have a, productized business. Do you also have um, services? Do you offer services to these folks or are you literally just handing them templates? Do you have, um, can you, can they sign up for a course and have you walk them through how they might customize these or anything like that? Or is it literally just you give me dollars, I give you a template. Thank you for doing business. (laughs)
2: yeah no we we definitely know exactly who our customer is and like i said they're they're very beginner typically or they've never paid attention to this stuff and they're very intimidated by it so all that that's included with their template purchase because we know that if we're just giving them the template and we're not actually giving them it's not even teaching them so much it's just giving them permission on how to use it like this is what you do just fill in the blanks and copy and paste it into this platform and this is the platform i use um Just giving them that little tiny hand-holding experience, we actually call them our hold my hand guides. That really helps them through the process and to make that purchasing decision because they know that the support doesn't just end. Um, I read Perennial Seller by Ryan Holiday a few years ago. And that was where I really switched from focusing on marketing to focusing on the customer and their experience. And everything he talks about in that book is true. Like If you want to sell more services, products, whatever, just read that book. And as hard and as painful as it is to turn your focus away from like the shiny Facebook ads and like the great video marketing that's being pushed your way. Like it just none of that matters if you can't make your customers and your clients happy.
1: Yeah. Uh, And that applies to lawyers, you say?
2: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and that's the thing is I I have more work than I know what to do with in my law firm. Um, like I just refer it out to a friend who started a similar business, and she's technically a competitor, and I refer her a ton of business. Um, because it's just like i i I know what I want and I have these nice boundaries around that. And I just know that like I like working with the clients that I have now, you know, one's like a one's like best friends with like Tony Robbins. So <laughs> like she's so cool, and I love working with her, and I would rather just spend more time working with her than like finding new clients or. Um you know marketing myself more um, and just I guess doing more of what works instead of trying new things and throwing spaghetti at the wall yeah to go back uh, do I have services in the contract shop? No because the person who's buying my contract templates is not anywhere near or I I have never had success offering customized contract template services um, where you know it, there's like a little, kind of like buffer page where it's like, you're now leaving this and going to the IP law website. Yep. Um, I've never had success with that. And it's because I think what a lot of people don't understand, especially like people that don't have a marketing mind, is the people that are buying my $455 contract templates are not the same people that want to work with me as a lawyer and pay $350 an hour. So it's just, there's just no crossover there where I thought there might be some like up leveling to that experience. Yep. There's none, so I don't have any services there. We get asked occasionally, and you know, I just hey, here's my prices, here's what I do. You know, I only work with this many clients. I have one spot open in February. No response every time. So, um, but the the one service I have been asked for, and that you kind of alluded to, that I'm starting like a third business, kind of is well, not kind of. I am starting a third business is consulting um, for digital product creators, like yes. turning your service into a product because a lot of people don't know how to do that. They don't do it well. They don't get sales. Um, they focus on the wrong things. Uh, we do twice a year sales that are just like killer. Like we're known in the creative industry. Like three of my friends call me the queen of black Friday because we just do this like killer black Friday sale. Like this year it was a six figure sale again. And like, it's just crazy. So, um, most people are not selling digital products like that. Most right. people don't understand like how to turn their service into a digital product. So that's uh, the third business I'm starting, and I'm just kind of testing the waters to see if it's something that people want. Because sometimes you think that people want something, then they don't. I tried to start a business a while ago called Ruckus, and it was all about you know how attorneys can market their business like me and have these personal relationships and partnerships with clients and have this great income and all this stuff and uh, build funnels and get on Instagram and use Pinterest. I even did. I went on Lawyerist and I did an episode about Pinterest because that was a really big driver of traffic for us. Right. Nothing. Like I tried to sell so many different things, had a really engaged audience and it just didn't take. So, I mean, I know where to cut my losses and, you know, I spent a lot of time creating really great products and possibly services for those people and just nobody was interested. So I was like, you know what? Ruckus is dead. I'm not doing that anymore.
0: Our website, TheJDHD.com, makes this podcast possible. Sign up for a completely free 10-day email course introducing you to ADHD for lawyers at TheJDHD.com slash course.
1: You are describing um, a a world that many lawyers, uh, don't have the audacity to think about. And that is, um, you know, you described your law firm as one where you, uh, intentionally call your clients, you pick the best ones, you have clean boundaries with what you're willing to do and what you're not. Um, you, uh, have clean and close relationships with competitors and you have the freedom to build other things to augment your life and your creativity. Um, I want to turn our attention to ADHD because I have some theories about what it is in you that does some of these things. (laughs) I don't want to be too presumptuous, but we know a lot about people with ADHD. And the thing about this podcast is we talk a lot about the strengths, right? before we talk about those strengths and and maybe how how ADHD has impacted your life as a professional and as a person, could you talk a little bit about what your life was like before you were diagnosed as someone with ADHD?
2: Yeah. So I didn't get diagnosed until this year um, and it took about eight months in therapy. So I went to go, I started seeing a therapist at the end of last year, 2018, because I was really, I thought I had depression. I just like was overwhelmed by everything. I couldn't get out of bed in the morning. I just, like opening my email was the most anxiety inducing event every single day to the point where I just like, wouldn't be an email. Um, and if you run your own business, that's, I mean, no can like, do. yeah. So, um, <laughs> tip for anybody out there who also suffers with this kind of anxiety, sometimes it's, it's good and bad, but I use airmail so I can like, just click on the inbox I want to see. So like for a while last year, All I was doing was going into my Christina at law.com inbox so that I could work with the clients. And like if customers had questions, issues, complaints, I was like, uh, ignoring that. Um, So yeah, I I knew something was wrong. And I knew I had seasonal affective disorder. And um, it's actually been way better moving out to Colorado. I think it's just a lot more sunny here than Atlanta in the winters. Um, So that being said, I just wanted to get help and figure out what was going on. Because if it was depression, obviously there's things that you can do to that, do for that help uh, that help that, you know, as I hired a personal trainer, I was trying to do a lot of exercise and eat better. And hopefully that would also help. And um, when I wasn't making much improvement, I finally was like, you know, what do you think is going, my, re- my therapist, her name is Ritu. So I said that Ritu, what do you think is going on? And she's like, I'm not really supposed to tell you like what you're supposed to do and da, da, But like, I I want you to go see this, a psychiatrist and get an evaluation because I am like 110% sure you have ADHD. And I was like, what?
1: Stop. Yeah. Like that's where I want to go. Is that the, is that the first moment that it had entered the lexicon for you?
2: Oh yeah. Yeah. I was like, there's no way. Like I can't get out of bed in the morning. I don't have like endless energy. I'm not hyperactive. Um, and she's like, well, <laughs> here's all the things that I've been noticing. And she just like listed off this, actually, I take that back. So part of, part of this day's conversation was, and you'll see me today, like, um, and I'm on my medication, uh, but still like, I walked in every single day to every therapy session I have with her every week. And I would carry like a canteen of coffee. And she was, she asked me that day, she was like, right before she told me, like, I think you have ADHD. She's like, how many of those do you drink a day? I was yeah. like, yeah usually like two or three at least. And she's like, so you drink like a liter of coffee every day. I was like, "Mm, yeah, I guess so. Cause I have a big percolator and I'd make like one and a half of those a day and drink it. She's like, so then this, this conversation happened. So I forgot that was like a big part of that day. But, um, but yeah, so I just was kind of, uh, blindsided. Can you you stop
1: and tell me some of those details to the extent you're willing to share? What are some of the things that she had observed in you that she had been watching that sounded to her like ADHD drinking a ton of coffee, of course, but we all do that.
2: Yeah. Okay. So here is the biggest thing that I think tipped her off is I, I was telling her like how hard it is for me to go grocery shopping and actually enjoy grocery shopping. Um, so I will go to the grocery store and I will race around to the point where, like, sometimes I'd knock into people's carts and like, I just had like this anxiety that I was going to forget something. And I'm like, why do I care so much? Like, it's just it's just groceries. Like, you forget something, go back. Like, and where I'm at in Colorado, I don't have like, you can't order it online or anything. It's very rural. (laughs) Um, So that that was out of the question. So anyway, that was a big tip off to her because. I have this like anxiety about collecting everything that I need for this this grocery trip to the point where it's affecting me and like my interactions with other people. Um, where she thinks that if I just had like a neurotypical brain, you just go to the grocery store, you have your list, you're not anxious about something you're going to forget from the list that's right in front of you. You tend to remember like where things are in your store, whereas I'm like going all over the store, like back and forth, back and forth. Um, and so that was like one of the, the things that she noticed in my daily life that was kind of the tip-off that I was like, huh? Um, trying to think of like other things that she noticed. There were a lot of things that, like, as far as the overwhelm goes that had to do with the ADHD. Basically, I was stuck in this cycle of feeling overwhelmed. So I wouldn't do anything. And then because I didn't do anything, I felt more overwhelmed and I felt more behind. Um, so then I would do even less, and then I would, you know, it just was this horrible cycle that kept continuing, and you know, my my sales were starting to plummet. Um, obviously, my anxiety was through the roof; like everything was not going well. And when it started to affect like my daily functioning, my life, my business, that's when she was like, "This is really serious; like we do need to do something about it." So um, that tipped her off, and I think it was just a lot of stories that I had told her along the way about things that I did or didn't do in law school. Um,
1: So I want to talk about some of those too, because there's some interesting stuff in there before we get to law school. Tell me just a little bit. So, so my supposition is that you are not a hyperactive ADHD type. So I suspect that your diagnosis was, was not.
2: Well, (laughs) yeah, from what I understand, there's like, as far as we know right now, it's always changing, but there's like seven types of ADHD.
1: Yeah. Uh, Depending upon. Yes. Yeah. Uh, We'll, we'll spend some energy on this probably elsewhere, like kind of how you categorize. Sure. Um, maybe, inst- maybe what I really want to get to is what did it look like for you as um, someone who is creative and intelligent and ADHD isn't something that shows up in your, you know, after Adulthood, law school. Yeah.
2: So no, what did it, was, it look like it when you were a life. kid? Yeah. Uh, It was a lot of misbehavior, which I think went undetected because I was a girl. And also because I moved like every year and a half. Uh. So how could anybody know me well enough when I'm coming into their classroom halfway through the year and, you know, leaving and then going to someone else's classroom and possibly leaving their classroom in the middle of the year? Um, I got really, really, really good grades in high school and college. So I think that also helped to disguise it. I took almost entirely all essay classes in college and even in law school to the extent that I could. And I think that also helped disguise it because I was able to, I'm a really good writer. And so I was able to either mask it with the good writing or, you know, pull something off at the the 10th hour, you know, huge procrastinator. So yeah. was never writing anything on time. Um, I was such a schmoozer. Like, I would go to every office hours and like suck up to every TA ever. And like, just even in law school, I did that too. And I mean, it's just like, I'm not like proud of that, but <laughs> I totally did it. Um, cause I wanted the good grades and I knew that was how I could do it. Uh, if I got on, cause people are people and they would give me a better grade if I was like nice and interested and it helped me learn and they had interesting things to say. So it wasn't all like a waste. But yeah, I totally did that. And I think. That was another tip off is that when I got to law school, I'd had all these great grades. I get to law school and everything's just tanking. Um, Terrible GPA, like terrible uh, ability to study. I was going to like anthropology and shopping for four hours the day before a test that I hadn't even studied for. So I have no idea how I even passed like all of those final exams that you have for every class in law school. I got great grades on my essays again. So yep. when I could, I took essay-based classes. So yeah, I think that's a lot of how it, it was like disguised and I just didn't notice it.
1: When you were diagnosed, uh, tell me just a little bit about what your journeys looked like since then. So you went from a sense of overwhelm, something that looked and felt like depression and anxiety, despite being, to, by all outward appearances, being a very successful um, you know, intelligent entrepreneur with a whole bunch of clever business interests and sort of an insatiable desire to create and to help and to do a bunch of other stuff. Um, you're, you're kind of a mess. Yeah. Did the diagnosis change anything for you?
2: Oh yeah. Well, I mean, whether it's good or not, I like it. I chose to go on medication. Um, that changed everything. That bo- that broke the pattern of me feeling like I was a piece of crap, um, and getting overwhelmed, and then not doing anything, and then getting more overwhelmed because I wasn't doing anything. So it broke that cycle, and it pattern interrupted in a way that I was able to get back to life as I, I knew it before. When I I had that like initial, like anybody that starts a business that you're really passionate about, you know what I'm talking about. When I say like you have this huge Initial, like, adrenaline rush and it just lasts for months and months and months. It's not actually adrenaline, but you know what I mean? Like, it's just this like zeal and you can't get it out of your head. Like, you can't not do it. Um, Maybe you guys have experienced it with something else, like a hobby, or, you know, a lot of people get into yoga for the first time and then, like, suddenly, you know, within three months, they're booking every retreat and yoga teacher training. I see that a lot. So it's just like when you get into something new, you have this like zeal. And I have lost that for my business. It was tanking, I felt overwhelmed. Uh, getting on medication. And then obviously, I've continued therapy every week. And that's really helpful. So like cognitive behavioral therapy, talk therapy, medication, that's what's worked for me to change and pattern interrupt and then keep myself on this forward moving trajectory that feels much better. I have a lot less anxiety in my life. I wouldn't say it's totally gone. Um, All the overwhelm is gone. I feel really (laughs) secure in where I'm at with my business where I did not before. Our profits are much, much, much better than they ever have been since I went on medication. Um, and I like—I mean, I have to be reminded to take it. Like, I go to therapy every week, and and Ritu's like, "Did you take your medication this week?" I'm like, "Oh, I did the day after I saw you." So it's like not even like I'm taking it every day. I just—I mean, I try to, but um, you know, I try to create a habit around it where I'm taking it with like my thyroid medicine in the morning. But like, it's. It's on and off, but just even that sporadic medication has been really helpful.
1: Yeah. 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 And are there any, um, you know, we kind of talk about resources, education, learning about ADHD and what it looks like, but then we talk about, um, you know, tools and obviously medication can be a tool and therapy and coaching and things like that. Um, You know, what else works for you? Maybe when it comes to productivity, for example, are there any things that you've done to kind of build scaffolding around what might otherwise? Absolutely. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about that.
2: So, if you want to have a successful life or business, you have to automate everything. Like, you just have to. So, I automate how I get paid, where that money goes. I automate um, client processes. I automate for a while, like when I wasn't, when I was more in Atlanta, I was like automating all the cleaning, the water delivery, like everything that I had previously been like, oh, we're out of water. And then we'd wait two weeks and then I'd go to Home Depot and refill the water. So, You know, just taking those few minutes to sign up for a water delivery service and have that automated. And then, you know, automating the payments, like everything that you possibly can, is a huge help. And the other thing I started to do, and this was kind of like self medication before I even was diagnosed, was I I lose everything. I lose everything. No matter how important something is, I will lose it. And so I just started putting things where they're supposed to go right that minute even if I was late, which I'm always late. And that's also gotten better since I was medicated. So, um, yeah, I mean, I just- You was created a
1: place for everything. You found, yes. everything found a home and you were exactly. diligent and about even putting even if it I there. was going
2: to be like late to get to somewhere, if it meant that I put my keys back where they were supposed to go or an important paper in the file it's supposed to be in, I would do that. Um, so just kind of like self- I don't know what you would call it, but like setting yourself up for success in that way is really critical because if you, if you don't do that, then your, your life is just a mess and you get to that place where you're just like, Oh, I'm such a piece of, you know, and I can't do anything right. And that's where I was at. So Yeah. yeah. Creating habits, automating, making sure things happen, like just setting yourself up for success in that way is really helpful. Oh, so I was also a chronic overspender, like shopaholic in law school and you know throughout my adult life. And that's obviously really, really bad for your finances. So one of the things that I did um, was I, because of all this, I opened up a bunch of different credit cards. And I linked them to things that I only use like, infrequently, created auto pays, destroyed the credit cards that I didn't... I don't know. Maybe the financial experts out there will be like, Oh, you should just get rid of your cards. But I wanted to keep my open lines of credit, keep yeah. my credit good. And then... Um, just automated everything. So basically, you know, I buy Starbucks maybe like twice a month, and I have it as an auto reload from these cards so that they stay active. But I can't like I've I've like consciously made it so that I cannot access them. Um, so just kind of again setting yourself up for success in like even crazy ways. Like I I think that makes me a little crazy, but that's okay. I'm okay sharing that.
1: (laughs) I I mean, I I was just going to talk about, you know, the scaffolding and building some barriers to your impulses, which I really like, right? I mean, there are tools that you can use, you know, if you have a problem sitting at your desk and you should be working on a brief or a, you know, a, a trademark application. And instead you're, um, you know, goofing around shopping for Christmas things on black Friday or contracts on black Friday. Um, you know, shutting off your internet is a thing that you can do. You can literally turn your computer into airplane <laughs> mode, turn it into a brick and just type, um, or yeah. other types of scaffolding. Um, where for example, set
2: time, if, limits. Time, time limits Time limits. is really helpful for me when I first started blogging for my site because, um, I would spend seven hours on a blog post yep. easily. Amen. And so when I started or newsletters, you know, weekly newsletters or whatever, so when I started setting myself up with like a 20 minute time limit, and if you really are like not good at this, then just like fill your computer up, go to Starbucks, work, and then your computer is going to die at some point. Um,
1: I love that. Th-
2: those are helpful things to do just to make sure that you're not spending seven hours doing something that could only take, you know, it, it only needs to take me 20 minutes.
1: Yep. So um, there are a bunch of ideas like that. I love the idea of blocking out times when you make yourself available to be contacted right? So one of the things that you talk about with the contract shop and your relationships with your clients, the law firm are sort of these boundaries. And one of the boundaries that I really like setting with clients is saying something like, you matter to me and I want to make sure that I am here for you. The way that I am here for you is to be here for you every single day between two and three. And if Mm -hmm. you have a question or an issue... You come and you talk to me between two and three every single day. I will be here for you. You can book in through the scheduling software and, um, it'll ask you what we're going to talk about and we will pound it out. It'll give me a little bit of time beforehand to get an idea about, about it, do some research if I need to. And then we're going to knock that out and it's going to be fast and easy for you. It's going to be fast and easy for me. And I'm not going to get pulled out of my real, you know, the work that I'm doing on your actual thing. All day, mm-hmm. every day by clients yeah. who just have sort of a smattering of questions. So there are tools like that that I really love to incorporate into people's lives because we can't help ourselves. That impulsivity and the distractibility is such a critical piece of um, that that needs to be controlled in order to bring that creativity out. Yeah. Right? If you're just yeah. reacting all of the time and it's right. just a, a fire all the time and you're putting out the latest one, you never have time and space and margin to actually go create something or make something beautiful yeah. or make something additive. And um, so I love that.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I actually give my clients more access to me and it has cut down on their communications substantially. Ah, Interesting. So two of my clients, they prefer Slack. And so I've just jumped into their Slack communications, and their entire teams can ask me questions. And um, they are absolutely thrilled with it because they just can ask me anything anytime. I can answer anything anytime. Um, There's not like this let's schedule a call on Tuesday. Oh, Tuesday won't work for me. Let's schedule it on Wednesday. Oh, okay. Well, I'm only available. So there's no like back and forth. It's just immediate. Um, They don't have to explain anything. Their entire team can ask the question. So I am. Always like completely abreast of everything that's going on. Um, I don't have to get like background from them because I'm seeing what's going on in their general. I'm seeing what products they're launching and they can just drop links right there. We have a record of it in Slack the entire time. Um, You know, they know that Slack is about as secure as email. So, you know, I do have them sign like a basically a waiver that says like they understand that this is still protected by attorney client privilege, but you know, it's Slack. So, who knows, like how safe it is. Um, so, like the really serious stuff, they're not. That's not where they're putting it. But right. you know, the questions about like, hey, is this disclosure okay on my sales page? Sure, drop the link. I'll check it out. Sales page is public anyway. So, yeah. um, you know, that's the kind of stuff that I'm. I'm like in there all the time. And actually, I would say that every single one of my clients since they're business owners themselves, they actually usually take like Thursday to Monday or like Friday to Monday off. Um, Or at least that's the time that they're using to work on their own business. Yeah. So they don't even contact me those days. It's usually just like Monday through Thursday, which is fine.
1: How do you keep yourself from being in Slack all day, every day, and just waiting for that next like ping or dopamine hit or question or thing to respond to?
2: easy. Uh, I just quit it. Got it. I just quit the application and like nobody's expecting. I, I tell all of them, like, this is my phone number. You can contact me, like if it's an emergency. But you know, obviously if you're contacting me a lot here, no one no one's ever abused this. I'm like, if you text me or call me like all the time on my phone, it's you know, I'm not gonna like run off the ski slopes at three o'clock on a Tuesday to go take your phone call anymore because I know it's not an emergency. Right. And so no one has ever abused that. Um But like, I have had the occasional text from these clients who are like, "Hey, SOS! Like, can you get in Slack right now, or can can you get on the phone right now?" Which is fine. Like, that's exactly what they should be texting me about, and that's what it's for. Um, But yeah, I would I would say like giving them more access to me and me being more of a partner in their business than just like a, "Hey, we're coming out with a new program. Like, do we need a new trademark?" Email every once in a while. Yeah, like that. That that doesn't work for me. And that doesn't really work for them either. Um, the other thing is that because they're small business owners, and a lot of them have had this amazing success, but they started out as things like copywriters and photographers. Uh, they don't... like They didn't go to law school. They don't know anything about issue spotting. They don't even know what issue spotting is or like that. that's a thing. Um, so they don't even know when they're having an issue with something. And so just me being in Slack constantly with them, seeing what they're up to, seeing what they're about to post on social media, etc. Because like One of them has over a million followers on Instagram. And then the other one has uh, like, I don't know, 40, 50,000. Like these are people that have big followings are very visible. And so for me to be able to just like see everything that they're doing constantly is really helpful.
0: You're listening to JDHD, a podcast for lawyers with ADHD with Marshall Lichty.
1: I can, I can um, feel that intimacy being a really critical part of a good, healthy relationship. And I suspect it's born a little bit of your in-house experience, right? Right out of school, you're an in-house lawyer. You're there to help the business people succeed on their, you know, uh, on their goals Mm -hmm. and your support, obviously. Yeah, I do not
2: think about it like that, but probably.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think being in a spot where you can anticipate those needs and forming a meaningful relationship just gives you more information, more data, more useful stuff and I think um, there's a tension there with how close you can be and how open you can be. Um, and as an ADHD lawyer, maintain the margin you need to think about their problem or work on their thing or whatever. And so it sounds like you've struck a, a really interesting balance that probably provides some extraordinary service, both in terms of being there and being responsive and understanding their business, but also delivering on, on the goods, which I think is, is, is spectacular. Yeah. At the risk that we're going to be here for three days, I want to ask, um, I want to ask two quick questions about sure. content creation. Cause one thing that I believe about lawyers and about their businesses is that they need to be a lot better about sharing their brilliance with the masses. That's a thing that you mm-hmm. do. You're a marketing mind. You've had a podcast, a very successful one indeed. Um, you've had, uh, you know, a variety of marketing endeavors. One thing that I want you to talk about, if you would, You at one point talked about creating blog posts in groups of three. Tell me about why you would write blog posts in groups of three and how that helped you create content that was useful for a variety of people.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, people, whether you're ADHD or not, you just have a limited time, limited attention span. Um, And so I like to just create things in groups of three or even four. And I learned this from a variety of different like mentors, but basically people have the same objections to making a purchase or you know even booking a service with. The... I know I'm not saying booking for lawyers, but um, engaging your services, they have a problem with <laughs> with um, making that decision, especially when there's a lot of money on the line. And so for you to create content that helps move them closer to that goal, which is they get the, the support that they need as their goal. And then your goal is obviously to run a business and make money through that. So to get you guys both closer to that goal, content can be a huge help. But in order for someone to make that purchasing decision, they need to know that you are the right person or product, product or brand for them. So you have to overcome the objection that like you cannot help them because that's what they're already thinking in their mind. Then once you've overcome that objection, you have to overcome the objection that... They are. Uh, they think that they are not able to be helped in some way. That they are a special circumstance. That they are so unique that no one could possibly understand their problem correctly. So you have to overcome that objection that your product, your service, whatever it is, um, actually can help them because they are not beyond help. Like they are able to get help. Um, They have to trust themselves, basically. So they have to trust you. They have to trust themselves. They have to trust whatever it is that you're selling. That's the third thing. So they have to trust that your service or your product is, in fact, the way through things. So once you've shown them that your company is reputable or you're reputable, that you've shown them that they can um, actually receive a benefit from this, that they're not beyond help, then the final thing is you have to really show them that this is exactly what they need. And this is the right time for them to do that. Um, So sometimes I split that into the last one into two parts and I'll do like a four part content or email series or something. But um, that's really just to, again, like break it down to like more of that fourth grade reading level, make it easy on the people that are um, busy. You know, They don't have time to read this. They don't have time to consume it. So you can do this for emails, podcasts, uh, blog posts, any kind of con- Instagram posts, you could do it for any kind of content. And then finally, the, the other reason I do it is because I'm a big fan of um, ClickFunnels and Russell Brunson and you know, not like everything that they do. But um, I, I am a, like, pretty into... Well, I really like Julie Stone, who is the... Um, she was the Senior Vice President at ClickFunnels for a while. And so I really liked her approach to ClickFunnels, I should say, for people that are familiar with the product. Um, not necessarily like Russell Brunson's approach. So, that being said, um, one of the things that Russell Brunson of ClickFunnels talks about a lot. If you're not familiar, it's just a software service company, but it's got this like whole like other kind of culture dynamic that goes with it. But yeah, anyway. and we'll
1: we'll leave a bunch of this in the show notes too because <laughs> this is this is important but in depth stuff, and uh, yeah, you know, we'll maybe spend so- more time on it later.
2: One of the things that he talks about that really like affected me early on was this idea of a soap opera sequence, and I just thought it was interesting. So I tried it out, and it worked so incredibly well. Like I really didn't want it to work because he's kind of like a like a salesy, marketing guy. Yeah, and I was like, I don't know, but I'll just try it. Like everybody says it works, I'll just try it. It worked so well, and so that's another reason I split my content into different segments. So you know, part one of four, part two of four. And people are really interested and engaged and looking for those next parts to come out. So it's it's one way for you to kind of break it up and make it easier on yourself because you don't have to write this like two thousand word blog post all at once. You can just write you know seven hundred words today and seven hundred fifty words tomorrow and um, give yourself a little bit more time. But then also overcome these four objections that anybody has that they, they always have to overcome in making any kind of purchasing decision.
1: I love it. I love having a system. I love um, <laughs> anything that we can do to help lawyers understand that sharing content is not giving away services for free. Sharing content is helping people that want to be your clients learn to know you and love you and trust you so that they can hire you and actually pay you money to help them do things. So uh, I, I just love the um, content marketing empire that you've built. And, um, you know, I think uh, any any lawyer out there who is interested in understanding where you can take content um, would be wise to check out some of Christina's stuff. We'll have a bunch of show notes about uh, some of the resources that she's mentioned for sure, Um, because this stuff is well tested. It's not like she's making this up right
2: I've learned this from a lot of people. I wish I made this up. I'd be a lot more wealthy if I made
1: this up, <laughs> <laughs> right? These are long track records of copy that works and content that works and, you know, philosophies that work in helping people get the help that they want and they need. And, um, lawyers have for too long been allergic to that. And so the idea <laughs> that, uh, there, are, there are some recipes out there and some tools that will help you do it, I think is, is really spectacular too. So before we wrap up, I have a couple questions sure. I'd like to ask at the end. I want to, um, for fear of, taking sort of a negative turn. Um, I believe that for the most part, um, having ADHD is ultimately something that will give you great strength and help you create a life that is interesting and creative and beautiful. We talked a little bit about some of the downsides and the stress and the depression and the anxiety and how well-being among lawyers is a challenge for our profession if you don't mind, I understand that you have some feelings about that, about wellness and about the impacts that it can have on us and our friends um, and our profession. And if you wouldn't mind, can you just tell us a little bit about how that culture of denial is hurting us?
2: Yeah. So um, I'm wondering if you're alluding to my story about my best friend. I am. Yeah. So I had a, a my best friend in law school died at 27. I'm 31 now. Um, so we were. he was a year older than I was. Anyway, he died um, of an opioid overdose. It was, you know, published in all the papers and his obituary. He died peacefully in his sleep. Well, nobody that's twenty seven. I mean, unless they have an undiagnosed cardiac condition, maybe. But, um, but yeah, I later found out it was an opioid addiction that he was hiding. <laughs> like he was just straight up hiding it from um, most people, and not well. Like the signs were there, but I didn't know what the signs were. So he was getting a lot of staph infections, which is not normal for a 27 year old. He was losing a ton of weight, which he just told me he was working out more. He seemed incredibly happy, like happier than I'd ever known him to be. Um, I had lunch with him a month before he passed away. And so I just think that um, the opioid epidemic that we see in like, quote unquote, middle or rural America is hitting lawyers too. Um, I'm, this is actually I, my, the girl who does my hair. Uh, her best friend was a lawyer. Same thing happened to her best friend when she was 37. Um, She was a, I can't remember what kind of lawyer she was, but she overdosed on opioids as well. So, I mean, obviously, this is anecdotal, but I would just really encourage any of you that thinks you have a friend that has substance abuse issues or any kind of like opioid addiction. Um, You know, my friend really liked to party and have a good time. And I probably should have seen that as like more than just normal law school partying. And in hindsight, it, it definitely was. So there was, a, there were a lot of warning signs, but it's just really sad that I think he felt like he couldn't talk to people about it because yep. he was like this up and coming lawyer in his community and, um, you know, just really active, uh, really engaged, like not the picture of someone that you would think that would overdose on opioids at 27 years old. So it, it happens. Um, you know, this is someone who came from like a very privileged, you know, middle to upper class background, um just had everything in the world going for him like had an up and coming career had been featured as like a local artist like a musical artist um just was going on tour with his band a little bit for fun um so it was just like a lot of things that were going for him and it just it can happen to anybody so i just want to encourage anybody that like might have some of these things that they're seeing their friends are losing weight they're you know, getting like weird staff infections or, you know, weird medical conditions for their age. Like that's the kind of stuff that you just have to pay attention to because these very subtle signs that could help save their life, hopefully. Yeah. But yeah, I, I definitely don't think there's enough done for lawyers. And I think they just kind of sweep it under the rug and say like, oh, lawyers are prone to depression and suicide. And that's just like an accepted thing. But like, I don't know why that's so acceptable.
1: <laughs> I think that's right. I, um... And I really appreciate that. And I appreciate that vulnerability. Lawyers with ADHD are 10 times more likely to have substance abuse issues. We are astronomically more likely to have anxiety and depression, alcoholism. Uh, We have a whole cohort of stuff that um, if left unmanaged is really, really difficult and potentially deadly. And the worst part about it is that it isn't, it doesn't have to be that way. You know, we are a community of lawyers, sure, but, um, you know, we are also a community of people and taking care of each other and building community and being open and honest with each other and being vulnerable to each other and trying to end some stigma around ADHD or anxiety or depression or substance abuse or alcoholism is, um, part of the process of healing our profession. And so, um, I want to thank you for what you have done to make our profession more beautiful and creative and compassionate. And, um, I want to encourage everybody that's listening to, to do the same, to take care of each other and, um, to get help. You've got to get your oxygen mask on before you can uh, help, help everybody else.
2: Yeah, for sure. I I, I tell everybody that everybody should be in therapy. Oh my God. I, at the risk of sounding like I'm a crazy person in therapy, I don't. I just don't care. I just tell everybody you should go to therapy. Just try it. If you don't like it, you don't like it. But
1: and if you don't like that, try coaching. Right? Coaching is way less. Yeah. Everybody's had a coach. You can just think of a coach. It's different. It feels <laughs> it feels better. And coaches can help There's you with very them
2: out there. practical things. There,
1: <laughs> there absolutely are that. Um, but there, you know, you you mentioned earlier that you have a Shopify coach. You have someone who helps do, you and yeah. coaches you do a thing that you're trying to get done. Right. That's true in productivity. It's true in lawyering. It's true in a bunch of other things too. So. Um, go get some help, coaching, therapy, whatever it is. Um, take care of yourself and take care of each other. I want to wrap up with two questions. Um, are you more of a uh, more of an optimist or more of a pessimist?
2: Definitely more of an optimist.
1: Totally. So we're going to save that one for last. We'll start with the, the the glass half empty one, which is so. If you had a magic wand and you could just wave it and make one feature of ADHD disappear for everyone on the planet, what would it be?
2: Uh. I would just stop losing stuff, like really important things. That would be really nice if I could just like remember that or just stop losing stuff. I even, I've even lost a tile. Those things that are supposed to help you find things, I lost that. I would get rid of that.
1: (laughs) That's impressive. The tile. All right. The flip side. Uh, if you had the same magic wand, maybe the different button or a different spell or I don't... Uh, whatever. I don't even know how to frame this question. Other than you could give everybody in the world one feature of ADHD, what would it be? What's the thing that you love about your ADHD?
2: Oh, definitely just like the manic drive to get something done sometimes. That's where our best sales and our best products and everything that's come from is like, I'll just sit there and be like, meh, meh, meh about it for a while. And then all of a sudden something will just light a fire under my butt and I'll be like, and then like a week later, there's like a course that I've been sitting on for two years and it's up and being sold and out there. And we're making thousands of dollars off of it. Like that's the stuff that I'm like, you know, I think is my superpower from it. (laughs) I love that. Other people could experience it.
1: Well, I will tell you, um, And not just because this is a clean way to end a podcast episode. You are an inspiration to folks. I love your um, drive to create and to make amazing things that make the world better. And um, to hear you tell your story and to tell your story as a younger person who's done a lot of things, um, I think can be inspiration to all of us. And so um, thanks for the work that you do and keep it up and, you know, never stop for everybody that's out there, Christina is going to be available kind of in all of the places. Um, I think the best place to find her is at the contract shop uh, and we'll have a, a URL in the uh, show notes. But also you can go to the Chuck Norris of what is the what is the local the Chuck Norris of legal products Uh you can go That's find not my
2: logo, but that'd be a good one. <laughs> it's on a website
1: somewhere. I didn't just make it up, but it's no, gorgeous. I don't think
2: it's mine, but, um, but yeah, so oh, you're right. It's on our about page. I think, yeah, that was a long time ago that I wrote that. So <laughs> where's the yeah, best place to find you? The, the contract shop everywhere. It's our handles. It's our domain name. It's, you know, our email, like whatever it is, if you just, Roughly throw that out into the Google sphere, you'll find us. <laughs>
1: right on. And if you're looking for somebody who can hold your hand through the process of turning a service into a product, or learning how to think outside of the box as a lawyer or as a service provider, um, Christina be a great person for that too. And so we'll put a link in uh, to the owners uh, inner circle.
2: That, yeah, that's just my yeah. That that's the owners inner circle com or my name. Um, so that's our new project that we've been working on. So that's exciting. But Perfect. yes, and thank you so much for having me and. Everything you're doing here and sharing about, and just bringing attention to all of this.
1: Well, it's my pleasure, and um, good luck sorting out Georgia versus Colorado. I thank uh, you. I have a, I have an inkling that uh, the West will the West will have won here before too long.
2: <laughs> I think you might be right.
1: <laughs> all the best to you in all of your endeavors, and thank you so much, Christina.
2: Yeah, thank you, Marshall. Take right care. On.
1: Isn't Christina Scalera amazing? This is a woman whose drive and wanderlust and creativity and clarity and entrepreneurship have driven her to amazing places, humbling places, places that get me so excited. And what I love most about her stories is her vulnerability. I love how she shared with all of us the many bumps along her path and the bumps that she's seen in other people's path, sometimes to a really devastating effect and um, I love that she shares that she's failed repeatedly, that she's struggled with mental and physical health issues, some related to ADHD and some not. She, like a lot of us, was diagnosed with ADHD later in her life. And she shared a a story with us. And she told us her story about the many challenges that she was facing before she got diagnosed. And through those struggles, there was this underlying pulse of creation and growth. and and malleability, it's all so conspicuous if you are paying attention. ADHD can drive us all to amazing places. I'm glad that you're on this journey with me. And if you'd like to talk to me about one-on-one coaching for your ADHD and its impact on your practice or your life, please email me at marshall at jdhd.com. We heard Christina Scalera talk about how getting her ADHD under control changed everything for her. That gives me so much hope. If your hope is bubbling up too, let's talk. See you next week.
0: Thank you for sharing your attention so generously. The single best thing you can do to support the JDHD podcast and this community is to help spread the word far and wide. Please tell your friends and your firms about it. Subscribe, rate, and review us in your favorite podcatcher. And please join our email list at start. We can't wait until next time. Let's make ADHD easier. Law is hard enough.